And welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. In just a few minutes, we'll speak with Health Commissioner for the City of Philadelphia, Dr. Cheryl Bettigold, about the small uptick in COVID cases in our region. We have questions about boosters, masking, and what to es- expect as summer winds down. And speaking of summer in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. no person or thing more associated with the season than the Philly Fanatic. Fanatic. Dave Raymond is the original fanatic and will join us later to talk about the power of mascots and why people love them so much. And we know a lot of you do. If you have fond fanatic memories, send them to us, studio2 at whyy.org. That's going to be a fuzzy segment. I'm, a fuzzy I'm, segment? I'm throwing that. It's yeah. like a PH fuzzy? Is that what <laughs> you're going PH for? fuzzy, yes. Okay. Today, Avi, we begin, though, our three-part series about the landmark lawsuit that decided Pennsylvania public school funding was unconstitutional. But before we get to all of these topics, we have some headlines. And Avi, I'm going to drop kick the ball your way. (laughs) Um, As that transition (laughs) points out, not a lot of us know a bunch about soccer. We don't. um, Myself included. (laughs) But it's a very, very big day for soccer in our region. And I would say one of the most important soccer events matches ever in the Philadelphia region. Mm -hmm. I'll break it down for you. So the Philadelphia Union, many of you know the MLS team here in Philadelphia, they play um, in this interseason competition called the League's Cup. And it's like a bracket-style tournament. And it just so happens that as the bracket has broken, they are going to play in the semifinals tonight against a team called Inter-Miami. Just like a month ago, Inter-Miami acquired a new player. His name is Lionel Messi, and he is arguably the greatest living soccer player, and some might even argue the greatest soccer player of all time. And tonight, he will play a match in Chester, Pennsylvania, in front of just about 18,000 people, which is tiny compared to a typical Messi crowd. So for many soccer fans in our region, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And really for the Union, who I should note have done an amazing job building up a really great team, uh, have a lot of wonderful accomplishments in the MLS. This is a level of exposure and attention that they rarely receive. So it's a huge moment for them as well. So Lionel Messi will be in Chester, Pennsylvania tonight. Go ahead, Chester. And by the way, the cheapest tickets, over $200, which is expensive for union tickets typically. And for folks who, like myself, don't really know the size of Messi. You don't know much. I didn't know much about him. Um, I did know that uh, LeBron James couldn't wait to greet him and dap him up. So that (laughs) made him a really big deal. But Messi has 482 million followers on Instagram. That's a globe. That's a huge number of people who follow him. LeBron James, only 157 million. Yeah. So he's bigger, way bigger. Bigger you know, than Beyonce on Instagram, than, Taylor yeah. Swift. Beyonce only has $315 million, only. y'all. Only, okay. And I do think it's worth noting, right, so I think for people who don't understand the enormity of this, for, for sports fans, for soccer fans, there is no sports star in this country who has popularity comparable to Lionel yeah. Messi. Maybe we haven't heard a yeah, lot about him. Don't global, know. yeah. The, the reach is massive, and it's a huge moment for soccer here in Philadelphia. Yeah, speaking of huge moments, Go ahead. another one came yesterday. You probably heard the news that former President Trump was indicted for a fourth time last night by Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis for trying to overturn the election results, this time in Georgia. And along with him, 18 other people were indicted, including a Philadelphia political operative. 
Now, um, this this is uh, this grand jury uh, in Fulton County. They indicted the president. They alleged that he and these co-conspirators engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn that Georgia presidential election result. The former president now faces 91 charges across four indictments. The RICO charges were brought by the the Fulton County DA, um, and they say that him, Trump, and the co-defendants, they are accused of making false statements, forging documents, impersonating officials, as well as attempting to influence witnesses. It's a huge indictment. And, of course, locally, um, a Philadelphia political operative by the name of Mike Roman is one of those indicted, and he served as Trump's director of Election Day operations back in 2020. You might not know the name Mike Roman, but he has been a political figure here in Philadelphia for a long, long time. In fact, the Inquirer reported this yesterday, and I actually didn't know that yeah. he was he was connected to this case 30 years ago, 1993. There was a very controversial state Senate election for a seat in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. It was important for many reasons, one of which was because it decided control of the state Senate in Pennsylvania in 1993, and it turned out there was indeed some election fraud that reversed the initial result of the election and Roman was involved in that case in the winning side. That was a case of real fraud, and they proved it. And in fact, the Inquirer reported um, a lot on what happened in 1993 and uncovered a lot of that. Of course, in 2020, totally different totally scenario. Different, yeah. But he has sort of roots in this issue in Philadelphia going back 30 years, and now he is indicted in Georgia. Yeah, and in Washington, that case, we also had local connections there. Um, and I should mention that one of the things that caught my eye was that Fonnie Lewis, African-American woman, Fulton County prosecutor, death threats. Um, Also, there have been threats against multiple prosecutors involved in this case. The one, uh, you know, the New York judge, uh, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, also she secured a guilty verdict in New York there against the Trump Organization, death threats, another black woman. The, The federal judge also threats. So this is sort of like... Gonna, we're going into some scary times, and mm-hmm. the L.A. Times did a whole write-up of uh, some of the threats that have been going on and some of the, the rhetoric that has been kind of spinning around as a result of all these indictments. Yeah, the story's been with us for a while and will continue to be with us for a while. Another story that's been with us for a while, COVID-19. It may be vacation season, but COVID has been hard at work. Cases are on the rise around the country in what has been the first uptick since the end of the COVID emergency in May. Philly's not seeing the worst of it, only a small increase in cases, but we still thought it might be time to check in with Philadelphia Health Department Commissioner Cheryl Bettigal for an update and a refresher on what we need to be doing. Dr. Bettigal, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're seeing an uptick in COVID cases, Dr. Bettigal. What's the current status in Philly and how does that compare to the rest of the region and country? Sure. So we are seeing what I would call a little uptick not a surge, nothing we all need to panic about. Um, it's not as big as the increase that was, has been seen in the South, but nothing in the country is very big right now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I was talking about COVID, give me a frog in my throat. <laughs> oh. um, but so this is something that we, w- we all want to pay a little bit of attention to. It's also something for people who are elderly, people who are immunosuppressed, they want to pay a little bit more attention to. But overall, very, very small increase 
compared to the kinds of increases that we've seen, say, in January of 22, when we had that big Omicron wave. Can you give us a sense of scale when you say small compared to that? Is there a way you can, I don't know, break it down for us? Because people might hear small and big and sort of not quite know how to contextualize. Sure. So, you know, in the worst of the Omicron wave, we had something in the neighborhood of a thousand people hospitalized with COVID. Now, you know, some of those folks had more incidental infections, some respiratory symptoms, but weren't really sick with COVID. But overall, most of those thousand people were there because of COVID. What we're seeing now is a few dozen in Philadelphia area hospitals across the entire city. And many of those folks are not actually Philadelphia residents, just a handful of Philadelphians Mm. hospitalized. So it still matters, but, you know, huge degree of difference from what we saw then. I got to ask, I mean, what are you looking at? Because hospitalization seemed to me something, I mean, people are getting COVID now very mild, not needing to be hospitalized. So what are you sort of looking at to determine whether or not there's an uptick, whether or not we should be concerned? So I look at a lot of different data every day. Um, You know, and the COVID data comes at different intervals these days, but I'm looking at wastewater, looking at what's happening in our local emergency rooms, as well as hospitalization and death data. That's, you know, it's a complicated set of data, but we know that most people are testing at home. Most people are not sharing their results with the health department. That is absolutely fine. Because if you, for example, have a little bit of a sore throat or a tickle in your throat, I don't need to know that, right? I need to know at the point that people are starting to need to use the emergency room Mm -hmm. because that can put a strain on our resources. It can bump other people who need care out. We need to start paying attention at that at that point. But people who are home, maybe they spend a few days in bed or they just, you know, stay home for a little bit because they're not feeling quite right. You know, that's not something that we as the public health department need to be on top of. And that's why, you know, we'd rather have people have those tests at home to use if they need them or just stay home if they're sick. So, okay, so if you're you're thinking right now, it's a small uptick. It doesn't look especially worrisome, but there have been seasonal patterns with this and regional seasonal patterns to some extent with COVID. Do you think you know what's coming in fall and winter? So there's a big unknown here that, you know, right now all the variants that we're talking about and the sort of variant soup that we're seeing are variants of Omicron to some degree. If we were to have a very different kind of variant that we don't have this wall of immunity to, that, that changes everything. The seasonality, not seasonality, you know, you, you can debate that. But one of the things that I get very interested in is the rate of rise. What we're seeing here is maybe 10 to 15 percent in the places that are seeing an increase. That doesn't take you to a very high peak, Mm -hmm. or at least you'd have to posit that it was going to go on for a very long time. When Omicron first hit, we saw huge rates of increase. You know, so that steep slope. Yes, exactly. And you know, if you get curious and want to see this, if you look at phila.gov/slash/covid, you can see the graph of the testing data. You can look back at that big peak from Omicron, and you can see that what we're seeing now looks more like wiggle. Yeah, and there is a new variant right now. Um, Could you talk about that? And also, is this just part of the the new cycle of COVID that we're seeing, that there's always around this time of the year going to be a slight uptick? So it's hard to know what the seasonality will end up looking like. You know, we have seen some kind of summer or something for the last few years and maybe something a little bit bigger in the winter. But those waves seem to be getting smaller over time. And, you know, I'm hopeful that if we don't see 
a major change in the virus that will gradually so th- see those waves kind of pe- peter out, get smaller, get less severe, to a point that it's just one of the other respiratory viruses that we're seeing. And, and this new COVID variant, can you touch on that? Sure. So, you know, the the latest variant, the EG5 that people are talking about, still part of that Omicrons too. So, you know, maybe a little bit different. It's unclear if that's what's driving the little uptick in cases or if it's more the waning of immunity because it's been a while since people had COVID or a while since they had their shots. But whatever we're seeing, it doesn't seem to be a a major new variant. About a minute left. Uh, Speaking of waning immunity, Waiting on a new booster, it looks like probably in the fall. What's your advice going to be about who should get that booster and when they should get it? So we're expecting the booster sometime in maybe mid to late September, possibly early October. Certainly anybody who is over 65 or anybody who's over 50 has any type of chronic condition. Anybody who is overweight, it's actually a major risk factor for complications of COVID, and it's the one we forget, Mm -hmm. Um, young children. So, you know, people who have a little bit of extra risk really think about getting that that dose in the fall. If you're a young, healthy person, you know, you've had your COVID vaccines and you decide not to get the booster, I'm not going to be dreadfully worried about that person. Could something happen Anything is possible, but really, you know, the the major risk seems to be based on age and chronic conditions. Yeah, and as we get ready to wrap up, just a quick reminders for folks: um, Do we wear masks, and when should we, you know, test ourselves um, if we think we might have COVID? Yeah. So the quick reminders for folks: first thing is, if you're sick, please stay home. And if you are a little bit sick, and for some reason you cannot stay home, stick a mask on before you see other people. From there, you know, boosters, especially for people who are high risk. Um, People who are high risk right now may decide to wear a mask in crowded indoor places. You know, anybody can decide, of course, to wear a mask if they prefer it. And especially if you're going to have contact with somebody who is high risk. You know, if you're getting on the bus, you're going into a crowded store, that might be a time you decide to put a mask on. We are still giving away free tests at Mm -hmm. our resource hubs. And, you know, we have lots of them. We would love to have people have them. So if you go to phila.gov slash COVID, or if you prefer phone, you can call 215-685-5488. You can get information about those locations and hours. Phila.gov slash COVID. Exactly. Still up, still there. There's still great information. That is Dr. Cheryl Bedigal, Health Commissioner for the Philadelphia Department of Health. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm hoping to catch the fanatic on my way out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Coming up next, (laughs) what makes a good team mascot? Well, we're talking about it, and you heard it with the original Philly fanatic. Thanks for helping us with the transition, by the way. That's (laughs) This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg, and that's Philly indie band Dr. Dog's Phonetic Song. I'm ashamed. I did not know that song know existed. I feel like I should know that. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. In 1978, that's 45 years ago, folks, our next guest stepped into the Philly Fanatics' furry green costume and walked onto the field for the first time. Back then, it was Veterans Stadium. The Fanatic was both an instant hit and an enduring one. But why? Well, Dave Raymond has spent his life pondering that question and others like it. He joins us now to talk about the essence of mascots and why they have such a hold 
on our imagination. Dave Raymond, the hero of happiness, the original <laughs> fanatic. Welcome to Studio Two. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Cherry Avi. It's um, exciting to be able to talk about something that is like um, a, a whole separate being from me, uh, <laughs> and and that is that's the truth. But forty five years, wow. Wow. Every time I hear that, I go. (laughs) And we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send your favorite fanatic memories to Studio 2 at whyy.org. So I loved Avi's intro, calling you the hero of happiness. You've also been Don, the mascot whisperer, and the guy who created the modern form of a mascot. But you kind of stumbled into this profession, um, Dave. So I want you to kind of Tell us the story, how you became the fanatic, and then tell us the moment you realized this was much bigger than a fuzzy suit. Well, I was my whole background was sports. My my father was a football coach at the University of Delaware. He was there for fifty years, and all I wanted to do was play football for him. And when he realized that I also wanted to be a football coach, he said, "Let me help you get a job with the Phillies." And that was in nineteen seventy six and seventy seven. He knew the owners, the Carpenter family, so I get this job, the most amazing job in the world, and then. Two summers are over quickly, and I realized, wait, I want to work for the Phillies. I want to be a football coach. And they called me in the spring of 1978 and said, do you want to come back this summer? So for the third year, I was only supposed to be a two-year internship. And I said, yeah, what do you want me to do? You need to go to New York and get fitted for the costume. The costume. And I said, what? And so my father had said, whatever they ask you to do, go do it. And I went to New York and walked into Geppetto's puppet studio, and that was the start of 16 years. And I wish I could tell you that I – found out the more powerful meaning to it a few weeks into it. But it took me well after I left the Phillies before I realized it. But um, but the fanatic is, a, is an enormous um, unifier. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he is the one that accepts everybody as long as you got the Phillies pee on. So um, in the beginning, all I wanted to do was keep my job. Mm-hmm. I figured, gosh, they're going to I'm going to say we're paying this kid a lot of money to be stupid. We ought to be able to find something to be stupid for less. And I'm like, you know, I didn't understand what my skill sets were because they came to me naturally. And um, and it it is truly, I believe, I'm here right now today to do the things I'm doing now because of all those experiences. And I get to look back as the fanatic as one of the best friends ever. April 1978, I believe, is the 25th of April. What do you remember about that night, the debut night? I remember trying the costume on because it was the first time I saw it. Uh, it got delayed in its construction. And I realized that no one had given me direction. You know, Bill Giles was a brilliant leader. Fanatic would have never been born without him. And he just liked to throw things out there. Let's see what will happen. Uh, so I went up to him that day and said, hey, the costume fits great, Mr. Giles, but what do you want me to do? <laughs> and uh, he saw that I was concerned, and he said, yeah, just go out and have a good time. Have fun, because it won't work unless you're enjoying yourself. And so I go, brilliant. I'm a co- college student. You know, and I go tearing out of his office, and he yells, G-rated fun, David. <laughs> <laughs> so I had that box. And One little set of instructions. Yes, and, it. and it was liberating because I knew, okay, I need to keep it clean. Um, and I need to be one of us. I was a Phillies fan, so that was easy. And when he said have fun, I went, you know, I mashed up the Three Stooges and Daffy Duck and all of the silent comics and went out and just did what I like to do and then blended with the Phillies fan. So I understood all of it. So naturally the output um, turned out to be really, really accepted, and it became very quickly a success, even without social media. Um, The very next day I was on the Captain Noah show. I've arrived, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and Tim McCarver said in the paper, we're 1-0 with the Fanatic. And I, I was just blown away that this future Hall of Famer and one of my, 
you know, heroes, Tim McCarver had had mentioned uh, this being, and um, and it's been forty five years of the same type of output. Was it always called the Fanatic? Is that the original name? That was actually a slogan for that year: "Be mm. a Phillies Fanatic." Ph. And they gave him that name initially. They were going to have a contest to rename him. But for whatever reason, some lottery laws were not followed correctly. So we just stuck with the name Philly Fanatic. (laughs) Did not know that. And um, something else I didn't know was that the Fanatic has a backstory. I was like yesterday years old when I learned where the Fanatic was from. Could you... Uh, talk about the backstory of the fanatic that you tell fans and also you've kind of created a science around what's necessary uh, for creating a successful mascot. Tell us about it. Well, it's interesting you say science because if we dive into the backstory, it came from me coming back from these appearances we were doing and appearances. We didn't even know what that was. Just, you know, Bill would say, go see what they want. And I would come back frustrated because they kept asking me, what are you? And I would point to the fanatic on the back of my jersey. And they said, no, no, what are you? And I said, I don't know who I am. And I didn't know why I was <laughs> frustrated. Right? And I said in frustration, I look like a Darwin experiment gone bad. <laughs> and somebody yelled, you're from the Galapagos Islands. And so quickly they- Somebody in a crowd somewhere. Wow. No, it was in our, we always had these oh, debrief oh, meetings. Okay. And I was exclaiming the frustration. And it was, I think it was a fellow intern. And then immediately it was, okay, you were a Darwin experiment. You were created unnaturally in the most beautiful natural places in the world. Your species is strange looking like all the others, but it's not accepted. So the fanatic leaves in search of acceptance, comes up, you know, (laughs) through South America and goes up into Philadelphia and sees the city of brotherly love. Mm -hmm. I mean, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, perfect story. So, and the science of that now, Sherry, is that the authentic storytelling is the most important step in success. Beyond the organization believing that it's a great idea and they're going to invest in it. You have to tell an authentic story because if it comes out and it looks weird and wacky like Gritty, yeah. you can, they say, why? You have an answer for them because you didn't know and then they tell you the story and they go, oh, I still hate him, but that makes sense. <laughs> so you get your foot, you know, you get your toes on the ledge and, and then you finally pull them in with great performance and, and the caring, caring from the organization, treating it not like a costume, like a living, breathing entity and this living brand extension and that's what the Phillies did and that's what was so powerful about Bill Giles mind and what he believed in I was thinking before this interview like why is the fanatic so successful and one of the things I was thinking about is the fact that he is like an extension of the brand but he's not so straight laced like he's a little mischievous he's a little impish oftentimes he makes fun of the umpires or the other team or the other manager. And in fact, I want to bring in a clip here. This is a fight that I guess you, not you, you you as a friend of the fanatic in 1988 had with legendary Dodgers manager, Tommy Lasorda. Let's take a listen. We're back here at veteran stadium and in between innings, Tommy, he's out there as the Philly fanatic as a stuffed mannequin of a Dodger and Tommy trying to get that fanatic close. You see the physique of the <laughs> of the mannequin. Tommy's a little bit hot, I think. So Tommy's hitting you with a mannequin, <laughs> I guess, that you made of Tommy Lasorda. I was curious where that part came from, the confrontation with the umpires and the other other team, and whether this, the, the Phillies were ever like, hey, maybe not so much of that or more of that, because it's a real big part of the fanatic's yeah. brand, and I think people in Philly do relate to that part of the fanatic. They do. It, it, you know, the, the G-weighted fund did not 
remove the passion and the insecurity we we hold on our sleeves. <laughs> right. the, the den of iniquity two hours north yes. of us, you know, in the 28 world championships and all that. That's part of being a Phillies fan. So the fanatic could embody that and, and embody it in a, in, a, in a little bit more of a kinder, softer way. Uh, Bill told me to go have fun. And he rarely edited me unless I had pushed too close to the box of something other than G-rated. So this idea for me as a former athlete and getting to work and be with my heroes, when I could get them involved and to the point where once they got involved, they started loving it. And they would bring practical jokes to me and say, hey, before the game, we want to do this to you. I mean, it was phenomenal. So, And that pulled the fans in. So one minute I would be... Uh, camping it up with Pete Rose, and the next minute I'm with you and your kids or your grandkids in the stands, and it really opened, you know, pulled back a curtain for them, and I was encouraged to do more of it. I worked with the umpires. I, I got to know Doug Harvey, whose nickname was God. Yeah. He was the one of the uh, leaders of the National League umpires at the time, and he said, I like you because you don't make fun of us as umpires. You have fun with us as an authority figure. He said, as long as you do that, and if we tell you we need to stop because something that's happened in the game and you respect that, I'll always work with you. Well, when God said yes, <laughs> then all the other <laughs> umpires the came and yeah. Eric Gregg used to dance with the fanatic. And um, so that became important to me because I loved it personally and it got me connected to the players at, and friendships developed from that. But then the fans felt the same way. And you got to see the players being human. And I back when I went to Connie Mack Stadium, I would go to the Phillies games with my dad. We'd sit in the box somewhere, and I would see one of the players do something that looked not like a player, like, oh, they shook somebody's hand or they waved at a fan. I went, that made me feel like they were humans, right? Because mm. I had them in my mind's eye as, as these heroes and that they weren't real. Um, you know, they weren't real. They were just baseball players that I loved, and that's what I love to do as a fanatic is bring the human element, connect people on a human level, on an emotional level, and nothing better in branding than if you can get your brand to go get hugged, yeah. Yeah. photograph, and then have people say, look where I was, and they show a picture of yeah. your brand yeah. and bringing them joy. So it, it was all part of that that matured over time, and it was about making sure the fans felt that there was something even – as important as baseball in those environments. And it got, I mean, you you actually train mascots and the performer, because you're, I mean, you there was, that's a lot of work. You were making friends, making sure you had those relationships, watching the games, coming up with actions, very physical work inside of a fuzzy suit, all of this. How important is the performance aspect and who's inside that suit? We talk about being good out of costume and good in costume. Mm. The good out of the costume is understanding the business, understanding why they're paying you, but also developing relationships so that you um, you can be campy and funny and make it look like it's a jump scare, but you've already talked to that person. Say, hey, look, I'm going to come up behind you and do this. Respond however you want to, but it's coming. And then they'll say no or yes or, hey, I got a better idea. And then they, they collaborate with you. So being good out of costume is very important. Being good in costume is about dealing with the physicality of it not not discounting how difficult physically is going to be, so you have to be in shape. And then understanding how to be handed a script where you can non-verbally be able to communicate that script as if you were reading it. That is an enormous uh, skill to hone and to work on your craft. You aren't somebody with a heartbeat 
that's you're not some kid in a suit. You are a performer in a character costume. We, so we use semantics. We try mm. to change and make them believe and understand the truth is they're doing important things. They potentially they're making the world a better place. They're mm-hmm. not just entertaining. They're they're making people forget about their problems for mm. moments. And some of the problems are really nasty when yeah. people are dealing with issues that come to uh, to a ballpark to try to be distracted. And and I used to answer the question why are why are characters why are mascots so um, so well received and why are they so beloved? And I'd say oh well because it's a cartoon character come to life. But now. I say because they are saving lives. They are changing people's moods. They are helping people uh, create a moment of joy that they're going to remember forever. These are all things in positive psychology that they teach you to do on your own. And the fanatic and other great characters, not all of them are done this way, have the ability to do that seamlessly. Before we let you go, only have about 90 seconds left. i got to ask you about Gritty, the Flyers mm-hmm. mascot, which you helped create. First 24 hours of Gritty Eight. is one of the craziest 24 hours I've ever seen on the internet. Everyone hated him mm-hmm. and everyone loved him. What are your memories of those first 24 hours of Gritty's existence and what lesson did you take away from that in about a minute? I told the Flyers to expect six months of negativity at the least and that if they stuck to their story and they continued to believe in it and didn't say, oops, we made a mistake, pull it back, it would work and it would work for a long time because they had done everything right. Actually, they created a character that I thought Stephen King would like because it looked like it was going to eat children. (laughs) They said they wanted to attract children, but when I pushed back a little bit on the design, they said, wait, we're doing exactly what we told, that you told us to do. And I said, you're right. What I like doesn't matter. And then when we went to the Please Touch Museum to watch 300 elementary school kids watch it, not a single one of them ran in terror, which I've never seen a rollout in front of kids where that didn't happen. And I went, wow, this is going to work. And the organization is laughing at the tweets. He sucks. I hate him. You know, and, and they were showing and say, oh, well, and then their leader said, only retweet the ones that are creative and appropriate. I went, these guys are going to win. And then once... The Pittsburgh they Penguins embraced the reaction. Yes, and yeah. they because they were ready for it, and it was so and Philly. They were looking yeah. forward to mm-hmm. it, and yeah. then and then the dismissive tweet from the Pittsburgh Penguin mascot, oh yep. lol, um, and then Gritty said, "Hey, sleep with one eye open tonight, bird." And that's when it flipped. <laughs> yep. And that is when it flipped. He's our ugly, not yours. Exactly. <laughs> and you're ours, Dave Raymond, the original fanatic, the mascot whisperer. Really appreciate you being on Studio Two. My pleasure. It was awesome. Thank you. Coming up next on Studio 2, WHYY School Podcast takes us into public schools with crumbling infrastructure for a special series this week. That's coming up. This is Studio 2, and I am Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. WHYY produces a podcast every year called Schooled, telling stories about Pennsylvania's public education system through the voices of students teachers, and parents. This season, reporter Aubrey Uhas took a look at the landmark case in Pennsylvania over school funding. A judge ruled in February that how we fund our schools is indeed unconstitutional. And that lawsuit, it went on for years. It was brought by some districts, parents, and nonprofit groups that alleged the state failed to provide adequate resources to educate kids in poorer districts compared to wealthier ones. A big part of the problem, of course, is the reliance on property taxes to make up for funding shortfalls. The Schooled Podcast does a great job laying all of this out. And over the next three days, we're going to feature the podcast here on Studio 2. In today's episode, Aubrey takes us inside two Pennsylvania schools to see stark differences between haves and have-nots. 
At first glance, Penwood High School, just a few miles outside of Philadelphia, looks like a lot of other schools. Think long hallways lined with classrooms and glass cases displaying student artwork, clumsy still life paintings and heavy pottery. A large quote is painted on the wall. So it says education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And then we have a fan right below there because I'm assuming the um, cooling system probably isn't working. The deeper you get into the building, the more you realize it's crumbling. Now, take a 20-minute drive to another public high school. This one's a few miles farther away from Philly. Here you'll find a very different setting. One so perfect, it kind of feels like a movie set. When I tell you, I walked in, and I thought I was in High School Musical. They had, like, a ballet studio. They had a pool. They had all of these workout places. This is the problem with Pennsylvania public schools in a nutshell. You need more money. Money. Budget, money, budget. Money. Funding, funding, funding. We don't have enough funding for this. We don't have enough funding for that. While some schools have resources in abundance... Others are falling apart and barely functioning. And it's affecting the lives of hundreds of thousands of kids and families across the state. From WHYY, this is Schooled, a podcast where we tell the story of public schools through the eyes of students, parents, and teachers. I'm Aubrey Juhas. Now a landmark court ruling could change how Pennsylvania schools are funded, potentially bridging these gaps. This has been going on for so many years. Is this finally our moment? We're in Delaware County, a densely populated suburb near Philadelphia. We're currently at Penwood High School in Lansdowne. Your high school? Yeah, my um, previous high school where I graduated in 2021. Nashari Stewart is 20 years old in her second year of college and home for spring break. And she's offered to show us around Penwood to give us an insider's look. Nashari has good memories of this place. When she was a student, she excelled in her classes, competed in mock trial, and served as a student representative on the district school board. You know, it's been the same building since the day that the high school opened up, so it's not in the best of shape. The building was pretty impressive when it first opened in 1927. Maintaining this once great building has been a challenge since money is always tight. And that's even though the school's district, William Penn, has one of the highest property tax rates in the state. There just isn't a lot of wealth to tax here. Property across the majority black school district is worth about $1.5 billion. And that may sound like a lot, but compared to nearby districts, it's minuscule. One has nearly four times as much wealth, another 10 times. Both of those districts are predominantly white. Good to see you too. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Judy Lee. I'm the principal here. Judy Lee has been the principal at Penwood since 2016. She knows the building and its problems better than anyone. Remember heat? Oh, there's no heat, yeah. No heat. No heat, yeah. Another issue is overcrowding. The building has been cramped since the district merged three high schools into one in the early 1980s as a result of the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. Although that sign before you enter says, you know, food or drinks prohibited, students have to eat in here because they don't have anywhere else to eat. We're in a small gym where you have to shout to be heard over the air conditioner. The actual cafeteria is too crowded. 
And even with the gym used for overflow, there still isn't enough room for everyone to eat comfortably. Students share, like, Dr. Lee, I don't want to be in that space. It's too crowded. I'm sorry, I don't have any other space for you. We walk downstairs and can't help but notice a big hole in the wall. How did that happen? What is that? So there was a, a situation and um, still basically um, could not control um, his anger, so he punched it and then the wall broke. When was that? That was uh, last year. And then there's the library. And you can see that like the paneling from the ceiling is like coming down. Looks like it's about to fall off. The small windowless room has a water-stained drop ceiling. We're still currently without a librarian, and so in order for students to be here, the teacher needs to, you know, take off from their lunch or their prep period uh, to be down here so that students can be supervised while they're in here. Principal Lee points to something on the floor. We also have mice infestation in the building. So you will see that mouse trap. It's an old-fashioned snap trap. We caught, like, ten mice uh, in my office and also at the library, so we have been calling exterminator, but the mouse trap is not really working. Principal Lee says over the winter, when the mouse problem was at its worst, staff had to clean mouse droppings off their desks every morning. Because the root cause is the building uh, structure, but we are not able to handle the root cause of the situation. We are only using the band-aids. All of this, the crowding, the crumbling walls, the mice makes teaching and learning tough. Yeah, one time the mice actually um, just running through the classroom when class was happening, and teacher screamed and stood on the chair, and students were screaming, and it was just not uh, conducive for our students' education. Nashri says the mice weren't a problem when she was a student, but she remembers lots of times when lessons were interrupted because of facility issues. Like the time they were reading Shakespeare in English class, and a pipe in the ceiling burst. Water came gushing down, and they had to evacuate the classroom. Those minutes, they amount to a lot of hours eventually, and that can really take a toll on like what you're able to learn and what curriculum is able to get through. And before you know it, you know, you're a little bit behind. And, you know, being behind, especially when other schools around you, like, they aren't behind. And, you know, we're all trying to get into the same colleges later on, so... Principal Lee knows the facility situation is frustrating for students and teachers. It's frustrating for her, too. But without more money, there isn't much she can do. Our uh, school culture is basically um, unity because if we don't work together, we are not going to make it. That sense of unity is why Nashari visits Penwood whenever she can. Growing up here, like, I've had to do the best that I can with what I have. I think that translates really well into college when you're in a new environment. And so taking those same skills I sort of had to learn here to to survive here, I'm now taking to using college to thrive there. And so I think it works out. But she knows that going to a school like this can make kids feel like they're being left behind, forgotten. When your school isn't, you know, in the best of shape, it can make you feel bad about yourself and your own self-esteem. And it makes you wonder, like, why, why aren't you worth the necessary funding to have what, what other schools have? How much money do you think your school spends each year? I don't know, maybe a thousand. Five hundred? Probably like thirty dollars. Thirty dollars? I don't know. Actually, fifty. Fifty. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. School funding is not something the average kid knows that much about, let alone how much it costs to run a school. But this issue is certainly on the minds of current students at Penwood High School. Paul, do you want to go first? Yeah, okay. Trinity Giddings and Paul Vandy are seniors. They spend a lot of time together, in the classroom and after school. They even co-host a podcast. The topic, school funding. Hello, everyone. This is Trinity and Paul, and welcome to Pending Funds. The podcast. About- Paul is also a representative on the district school board. A lot of times when I was trying to bring up issues, I always went back to, you know, funding, funding, funding. We don't have enough funding for this, we don't have enough funding for that. If I'm always running into the roadblock at our, in our own school, let me kind of get to the heart of it and kind of see real, what's really going on. So Paul and Trinity started doing their own research. Welcome back to Pending Funds. Today, we're going to be talking about how public schools are funded. A little over $7 billion gets spread out over 500 school districts. They learned that Pennsylvania relies more heavily on local property taxes to fund schools than almost all other states. That's why some schools have so much more money than others and why their school has so much less. During their freshman year, Paul and Trinity saw that discrepancy firsthand when they went to another school district for a speech and debate competition. They took a 20-minute drive north to one of the state's wealthiest school districts, Lower Marion. I had never seen what Lower Marion looked like. I didn't look it up, really, so I was kind of just walking in blind. You might have heard of it because of its most notable graduate, the late NBA superstar, Kobe Bryant. When they got to the school for their competition, Paul and Trinity could not believe their eyes. There's like a cafeteria kind of outside. Like they could kind of eat like outside. There's all these tables. We're like, oh, wow, that's nice. I thought it was like, this this is a fantasy experience because the ceilings were huge. We go in there, man, their lockers were the size of refrigerators. You could sleep in there. The place was spacious. It looked like amazing. It was pristine. It was like, it was updated. I never seen like a fully updated school. So walking around, everyone from our school was shocked, actually. Everyone was saying like, people go to school here? This district has a lower tax rate than William Penn, but still brings in way more money because its property is worth so much more. Drive around the winding leafy roads with beautiful stately mansions and you'll understand why. As a result, Lower Marion spends $13,000 more per student each year than William Penn. And it isn't just a matter of having extra things, like dance studios and robots. There are also major academic differences between the two districts. Lower Marion touts its liberal arts curriculum, with more than 200 courses. Students can earn an international baccalaureate diploma, which is considered by many to be the most rigorous. Penwood offers about a dozen advanced placement courses. But there's no fancy diploma, and overall class options are far more limited. Later that year, the kids from Lower Marion's speech and debate team visited Penwood. Trinity says there weren't even enough classrooms available. So we were in closets, quite literally. I had a round in a storage closet because there was no more room. Some of the rounds took place in the library, the one with the mousetraps. They had to unlock the library and there were all these dust on the books. And they're like, why is this space unused? And we can't even tell them why. And kids are like laughing and wondering why the school looks like this. And you just have to be quiet and not mention that it's your school. Paul was upset by what the students said. I'm not any different from any you know other student down the road. But knowing that they get opportunities that I don't, just because, you know, 
you know, how much money their parents had, where things that were out of my control, you know, it hurts you because you just feel like, what, what can I do about this? Paul and Trinity's district is far from the only one that is struggling. Research suggests the majority of Pennsylvania school districts are underfunded because of the state's reliance on local property taxes. Last year, about 30 percent of William Penn's elementary and middle school students were found to be proficient in reading, and less than 10 percent math. Let that sink in for a moment. That means the vast majority of students here are not hitting the mark. These are all issues Sheila Armstrong is familiar with. Sheila is a lifelong Philadelphian who has had her share of ups and downs, but has always landed on her feet. She credits her faith. Okay, Sheila Armstrong is a Christian. Sheila Armstrong is a strong woman. Sheila Armstrong is a fighter. Sheila's home is filled with encouraging statements, including a blanket she likes so much she hung it on the wall. And it says that you are strong, beautiful, chosen, amazing, special, unique, lovely, created. The words are there to inspire her, as well as her two boys, Skylar and Simeon. Sheila says she first got involved more than a decade ago, just as a concerned parent. It was 2012, and the school district of Philadelphia was in deep trouble financially. Cuts had to be made. And the year that I became the school president of the PTA was the year that we found out that our schools was going to get shut down. Sheila's sons were attending their neighborhood public school, Harrison Elementary. She had no idea what to do, but she knew she had to fight to keep the school open. So she got petitions from residents and businesses in the community. When she finished, Sheila says she had over 5,000 signatures. Then she took the petition to the city's state-controlled school board and urged them to keep Harrison open. Despite her pleas, the board still voted to close eight schools that day, including Harrison. In total, they would close 30. It was big news. This is wrong! For these kids, these are children! It can be your children! It's wrong! Outrage after the Philadelphia School Reform Commission... It felt like they didn't listen to us at all. Sheila was angry. Man, and I tell people... Anger can be a good motivation sometimes. And I say, you know what? We need to sue, okay? All I know is people move when you sue somebody. You know, (laughs) we want to sue somebody, you know? And then somebody heard me say that, and then I was introduced to uh, Michael Churchill. My name is Michael Churchill. I'm 39 years old, and uh, (laughs) but I was born in 1939, so I guess that makes me 83 years old. Uh, and I'm an attorney here at the Public Interest Law Center. And he was like, Sheila, we're working on this case. I, I'm sorry, that's my Michael Churchill voice. I remember talking to her, but I can't tell you when was the first meeting. So he's like, Sheila, we're working on this case, okay? And I think you might be good for this case on us. Would you consider signing these documents so we can do some research and stuff? Uh, I just remember has just her energy. That's as good a way of putting it. And I said... Sure, Mike. All right, yes, come on, let's go, because I want to sue. All I know is we need our school back open. Michael Churchill was the man to talk to, because he had already sued the state over education funding more than a decade before. But the case didn't go as he hoped. The um, state Supreme Court decided that school funding clause in the state constitution was non-justiciable. That's a fancy way of saying the court didn't want to get involved. Which brings us back to Sheila. By 2013, Harrison had closed and her son's new school was dealing with significant budget cuts. Bigger class sizes, no libraries, and far fewer extracurriculars. People thought the struggles that they were having was because of their 
own problems. That the people in the district thought, what was here, we aren't, we aren't taxing ourselves enough, or we're not working hard enough, or we don't, we're, you know, we don't have the right leadership, or, or something's wrong with us. Why are we struggling so? Without ever thinking that, hey, everybody else is struggling, and the problem really is not what you're doing, but what's going on in Harrisburg. Even though his earlier attempt had failed, Michael was ready to try again. It was time for him to go back to court. And this time, Sheila was coming with him. When I started this case, I thought it was going to be like a typical lawsuit, like a car accident or something. But it wasn't. It would take close to a decade for Sheila and the other petitioners to get their day in court. At times, I felt stuck in this case because it was like I felt like I was being attacked. She wasn't just fighting for her son's school. She was taking on state. I'm going through everything when I know I'm doing the right thing. I know this is right. And the state wouldn't dismantle the old system without a fight. This was so much bigger than me. This was so much bigger than my children, my family, the city. This was about all the kids in our state. That's coming up on Schooled. Episode 2 of Schooled airs tomorrow right here during Studio 2. Until then, Avi, that's the end of our show. Our producers, flies by. It flies by, especially when the fanatic was here. <laughs> our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and review. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us.